1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Your Critically Acclaimed. My name is William Bibbiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm the other one. Uh, Your Critically Acclaimed is a podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, uh, which is in which episodes are very specifically sponsored by our patrons at our top uh, tier. So you can go to patreon.com slash network. And at our uppermost tier, you can get a podcast made about any topic of your choice. This is a new uh, perk, a new reward that we're offering. And as with a lot of things that are new, we had to work out a few of the bugs. And one of the things that we didn't really think of when we created this was that the people who sponsored these might want these episodes to go live to everybody.
0: We, we, seems, uh, seems obvious we, now. but uh, yeah, we, we had failed at, at the very start to ask how public... Uh, sponsors wanted their episodes to be. Uh, one of the options is you can have it be just for you. Mm-hmm. If like you wanna, literally just you, nobody else. If, if you want to have a one-on-one podcast, then we can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want it to be available to everyone, we can also do that. If you want it to be available to just certain levels of patrons, it's all up to you.
1: That's fine, and there's, that's that's all good. We have exclusive content for very specific patrons. Mm-hmm for a variety of reasons, and that's totally, totally fine. Um, However, the very first episode of this that we did uh, was sponsored by a a person named Richard Francois, and they wanted us to do an episode in which we talked about the entire filmography of John Carpenter, a filmmaker that Whitney and I both uh, really treasure. He made a lot of movies that we've both really cared for over the years. And we produced that podcast. I think it was the first one that we did, uh, but... It didn't occur to us to ask if this one could go live to everybody because that wasn't really an option we had Mm. put forth yet. Uh, After we started putting a few episodes live to everybody, Richard got back to us and said, hey, you can totally put this out for everybody. I didn't know that was a thing. And we're like, we didn't know either. So this is an episode that we've already recorded. So there Mm. may be a few bits of conversation in this podcast about how this is exclusively for patrons. Mm. Disregard that. It's for everybody now. We just wanted to do a little intro explain why this is a slightly older podcast that's coming out now but um, I hope you like it John Carpenter is one of my favorite filmmakers and I love talking about his work his work's been very uh, influential to me Mm.
0: and uh, Whitney any other thoughts before we move on (laughs) Uh, no, we're we're about to gush about John Carpenter, so just get just prepare for that. Yeah. So disregard anything that has to do specifically with the Patreon.
1: There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with it. Just it's just not relevant because it's going to everybody. And uh, enjoy the show. Thank you very very much. Uh, you're going to hear the whole intro over again because that's how podcasts work. When you just sort of cut and paste them. Bye. <laughs> and welcome to Your Critically Acclaimed. Uh, This is a very special Patreon-exclusive podcast uh, in which uh, members of our podcast at the top tier get to select a personalized podcast, all for them. It can be released uh, to all of you, as indeed this episode is. It can be reserved exclusively for whoever uh, commissions it. The world is your oyster Choose a way And we're very, very excited to get to this particular episode In case you've forgotten, I am William
0: Bibbiani Everybody calls me Bibbs I'm Whitney Seibold uh, You can call me whatever you like <laughs> and uh, You can even call me late for dinner I'll even say that And uh, on behalf
1: of our patron uh, Patron? Patron patron, On behalf of our patron, Richard Francois, We're here to talk about The work of, frankly, one of my very favorite filmmakers And I'm very excited to talk about it John Carpenter. This is going to be a primer for John Carpenter. For those of you who may be less well familiar with John Carpenter or might want his work put in a larger context, most people, as far as I know, have seen or at least heard of a couple of John Carpenter films, and we're going to give you a broad overview of his entire filmography. Indeed.
0: Uh, And... Uh, we we know we can be long-winded. Uh, boy, howdy, can we? <laughs> you think? Uh, uh, Yeah. I, I, if you, you put, like, a top ten list in front of us, we can record easily for three hours. Yeah. This is going to be pretty, qu- pretty quick. We're going yeah. to give you a general overview of John Carpenter's body of work. Uh, you're probably familiar with a lot of his work, even if you haven't necessarily sought them out. Yeah. Uh, it's entirely possible that you've seen, a, like, maybe half of his filmography entirely by accident. Yeah. Uh, a lot of his films were run kind of on the regular on cable television. But uh john carpenter started uh with uh, like a, a genre like a science fiction comedy he ran mostly through uh genre films he wasn't like uh Wes craven or sam raimi who wanted to sort of do do like a prestige picture here and there or if he did he never got to do it uh, yeah maybe he did yeah uh well uh, he, he kind of he did,
1: always... did it on television we'll talk about that in a minute there's a couple of films in john carpenter's filmography that don't quite fit the idea but John Carpenter was a. Uh, he's semi retired now. He did the score uh, for the new Halloween sequel that came mm-hmm. out a couple years ago. But uh, yeah, he hasn't directed a movie in nearly 10 years. And when you look back over his filmography, he was, as far as I'm concerned, the modern king of cinematic pulp. He worked in a lot of different broad genres. He did stories with monsters and uh, trucker
0: heroes and uh, demons. and. They, they were very masculine without being uh, so aggressively masculine as, as to be off-putting. Yeah. Um... In fact, uh, if you look at sort of the, the big masculine stars that he worked with, you're thinking of Kurt Russell. He worked with Kurt Russell several times. Uh, he works with Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yep. Uh, and they live. Uh, these are big bruisers, but they're. Funny bruisers. Well, they have often, a kind of a, a wink to them.
1: Well, oftentimes, John Carpenter would play up the idea mm. of the machismo that was really selling tickets, particularly in the 1980s, mm. and then completely subvert that. And that's something yeah. that I think is indicative of John Carpenter's work, where a lot of his films would play at very uh, well known genre conventions, but they'd always be playful. And they would always subvert them in some unexpected way, sometimes more successfully than others. Another thing that's interesting about John Carpenter is that even though some of his films were massive blockbusters, he never worked in a big budget.
0: No, He never had a giant budget his
1: entire career. His movies were always Mm -hmm. mid-level. If he was a filmmaker today, and we do not have a comparison, he would be a filmmaker who consistently made... Action movies, sci-fi movies, and horror movies for about $40 million.
0: Well, we do have a modern analog. Some of the people who work for Blumhouse, for instance. No, but that's micro-budget. I'm
1: talking about, uh, he started out as micro-budget, but in the 80s... With stuff he had, like, he like mid-budget uh, stuff. He was a yeah. mid-budget filmmaker, and we just don't have mid-budget genre filmmakers anymore. It's always mm. micro or macro. Yeah. So he's very distinctive. His works were always uh, very exciting and fun. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the recurring themes mm. and uh, motifs of his work. One of the things I think is interesting about Charlie Carpenter, you mentioned that he started off with a low-budget sci-fi comedy. But technically, before he made his first feature, hmm. he co-wrote a movie that won an Academy Award. <laughs> he did a short film for you uh through, i think it was through usc called mm-hmm. the resurrection of bronco billy that's right and yeah. it was about it I, was I, yeah i haven't seen this so. i i actually never seen all of it either right. but like it's it's a it's a story about someone who uh dreams of living in the old west even though they live in the present day and this is actually something that john carpenter revisit constantly in his work john carpenter is a big fan of westerns and a lot of his movies big
0: have a big fan of westerns and a
1: lot of his movies not all of them but a lot of his movies have a very distinct
0: western influence mm. some more so than others as S- i said but specifically the two escape movies the snake Pliskin movies are, are westerns yep. escape from la even more so uh, assault from precinct uh,
1: 13 is practically a remake of rio bravo it, it,
0: it, it's openly a remake of, of yeah. rio bravo
1: uh, uh, he, ghost of mars is very much about hey what if all of the uh, uh first nation people that were killed mm. uh came back as zombies but we said it on mars
0: but it, end, it ends with a train chase, and they're throwing sticks of dynamite off a train. It's it's a Western. It's a Western, and, and I think uh, people also, sometimes overlook that. I think it's more interesting to be looked at that uh, way. Vampires is also just a straight-up Western. There's uh, even, like, horseback Big scenes. Trouble Little uh,
1: China was originally written as a Western and mm-hmm. then
0: got updated to the modern day. I, uh, I heard an interview with uh, John Carpenter. He was just sort of extolling the virtues of the Western, and... Uh, he even said stuff like, oh, yeah, In the Mouth of Madness is totally a Western. No, it's not. That's a stretch. There's nothing remotely Western about In the Mouth of well, Madness. Well, you go to but... a weird town, but beyond that, yeah, I think yeah. it's pretty thin. Uh, I actually got to interview John Carpenter once, and I asked why he never made, like, a proper odor, like, uh, with, like, horse, like, cowboys on horseback. And yeah. he just said he didn't have the patience. Like, he didn't want to have to work with horses. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's a good enough reason. Like, he loved those, he loves watching those movies, but yeah, I guess he just never had the, the patience to make one.
1: Um, but uh, his next project was actually a short film that had showed so much promise, they expanded it into a feature. Mm-hmm. And it's a film that doesn't get enough play, and it is absolutely delightful. It's called Dark Star. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was co-written by uh, the great Dan O'Bannon, who would go on to write the movie Alien. Mm-hmm. And indeed, some of the seeds for Alien are found in Dark Star. Dark Star is about a group of people who, like I think it's three dudes, they hate each other. They're living (laughs) in a confined space in the far reaches of the galaxy. Their only job is to find unstable planets and blow them up.
0: Yeah, with with bombs that are, uh, for whatever reason, (laughs) infused with artificial intelligence. The bombs speak.
1: Yeah, I don't know why that was necessary. I think it's the sort of thing that, like, I think it's a commentary on technology that sounds like a good idea, but actually serves no purpose.
0: Well, uh, yeah, you know, there's a, a flavor of Dr. Strangelove in there. Mm-hmm. There's been a, just sort of a commentary on the nuclear arms race. But, you know, in the 70s, so by, at that point, it's gotten a little stale. Everybody's yeah. bored with it. We can how, have how a little. We we can, can, yeah. yeah.
1: Dr. Strangelove, I think, proved we can have a little fun with or our nuclear paranoia. Dark Star definitely has an element of that. I also feel it's also fair to compare this to a Western. It's about people in the deep frontier living Mm -hmm. in complete isolation. Uh, There's a a whole sequence, and I believe this is part of the reshoot, where uh, they are tormented by the one alien that they found. It's a red beach ball with feet. Mm. And it's all about this beach ball has decided to kill one of them, and they have to kill it back, and that's the seed of Alien. It looks absurd. And yet, it is so effectively told Mm-hmm. Like visually, that even though it's a beach ball with feet. I worked at a Hollywood video once and we put this on the, the TVs mm-hmm. because it's like PG rated and it's fine. And uh, But people were like, you have to take this off. This is frightening. <laughs> it's a beach ball with feet. Feet, no, but it's are, so well made. Who cares?
0: They're a little monstrous feet. They got like claws. Yeah, but it's a like, pretty thin though. You know. It looks ridiculous. It and, and looks they, like a killer tomato, and they end up popping it. I like know, they pop it so like a beach it. ball, uh, and and of course it's supposed to look like a beach ball. And, yeah. and it's it's kind of playful. You can you can tell Carpenter smoked a lot of weed at the time. <laughs> I think it's probably it's it's, it's it's like pretty obvious. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's no disparagement. Just that's yeah. clearly a lot of the inspiration. And of course. It all that also inspired the climax of the movie which I think is the best part of the movie oh yeah where uh, wherein they found a, a planet uh, d- to blow up and yet when they set to when they set the bomb to go off there's a malfunction and it won't let go of the ship and it's gonna uh-huh. blow them up yeah and so, what? Somebody, one of the guys has to put on a spacesuit, go outside, and talk to the bomb and because talk, the bomb is artificially intelligent, and talk and they have, philosophy to the bomb. And they start to, well, and they they he realizes that when he's talking to this artificial intelligence, they have to get to philosophy pretty fast. Yeah, it's like, well, you you can't blow up because you're gonna you're gonna blow up the ship, and the bomb says, "That's my function. I was built to blow things up, and if you tell me not to blow up." I cease to exist. My, my yeah. raison d'etre why, is erased. Why am I here? It's an
1: existentialist dilemma. Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> well,
0: here's, here's why you're here. You actually have free will. You can choose whatever you like. You don't have to uh, fit into the mold you were built for. Imagine, yeah. imagine being a
1: huge fucking stoner. Imagine, like, Seth Rogen in Pineapple Express, okay, <laughs> has to talk a nuclear bomb into not exploding while completely high. Mm. That's Dark Star. Dark Star is great. It's very low budget, and that, that I think that only adds to its charm. It's really great. It's totally worth seeking out. We're going to move on. Uh, uh, His next movie was Assault on Precinct 13, uh, which is is a siege movie. It is about a isolated police precinct in the absolute worst part of town after all of the gangs in the area have stolen a lot of uh, assault weapons and uh, have basically formed a makeshift army. And through a series of actually really shocking acts of violence, uh you know,
0: like the, kids are murdered yeah, like, yeah it's, it's really, really
1: brutal awful. but like someone ends up pissing off all of these gangs and taking refuge in this isolated police precinct the day before it's supposed to go defunct so they've got a skeleton crew who's only there to like pick mm. up the phone and tell them to call someone
0: else see that's got a good hollywood premise right great there. hollywood yeah. premise
1: also there was a prison bus that was transporting prisoners and one of them got sick and they just had a layover there at the same time so now the cops have to team up with the prisoners In order to fight off a never ending army of heavily armed criminals who Mm. want to kill everybody. It's super fucking intense. It's not as stylized as I think something like people expect from something like John Wick or The Raid or whatever.
0: Oh goodness, no. But it's
1: really low. It's very efficient. And when you want Mm. to learn how to take how to how to do action storytelling efficiently, Mm. I would say the best thing you can do, watch Assault on Praising 13.
0: John Carpenter had uh, announced pretty early on, not with Dark Star. Dark Star, I feel like he's kind of fooling around a little bit. But with Assault on Precinct 13 on, uh, he really displayed that he had just sort of a natural knack. For cinematic storytelling, yeah, I I See, have it, it always been effortless. It's I've amazing. always been really taken by it, and I can't really put my finger on like his style, like a kind of shot he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he, maybe, he he likes panaglide. He, he does like panaglide. One of but, the he, and he even
1: fought in mm-hmm. his early part of his career. Panaglide is what uh, uh, the initial a version of,
0: version of uh, Steadicam. Steadicam. Yeah. yeah,
1: Steadicam was actually pretty much pioneered in the seventies. It was not something that had been used regularly mm. before then. And John Carpenter was an early, very, very big fan of it. And he fought really hard, even mm. though he was making low budget movies, assault and precinct 13 and Halloween were very cheap films. Mm. He fought to get this technology because he argued. And I've read like books of interviews with him where he made a big deal out of it. Uh, we can like make do with some other cheap things on the set, but in the end, all we've got is the footage, and if the footage looks professional, the movie is professional.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: It won't look like a low-budget movie if we shoot it like a big-budget movie. That's what? what we need to spend money on, and that's what they did spend money on, and as a result, movies like Assault on Precinct 13 and Halloween, even though they're super
0: cheap, look extremely well-made. Yeah, yeah. And they what, are. what was the first film to use a Steadicam? Do you know? A little piece of trivia? Oh, I used to know this. Mm-hmm. Uh actually no. I was was not gonna... Bound for Glory. Oh. Bound okay. for Glory it was the first of Cam movie. Cool. Uh yeah. Uh whatever it was, his use of editing, his use of just where he placed the camera. He had a, an uncanny talent for craft. And he's often been called, you know, his name is Carpenter. So a lot mm. of people say, oh, he's a very powerful craftsman, and that's true. Uh it's kind of an obvious like, a parallel, but there it is. And uh Uh, And again, I I can't like when you think of somebody like Kubrick or Mm. even Spielberg, you know, who go back to certain kinds of shots or certain kinds of motifs or certain kinds of lighting all the time. Carpenter doesn't really have that. He doesn't have sort of a master style other than he's very, very good. Yeah. And that's kind of an odd thing to say about a director. It's interesting how
1: naturalistic his approach is. Mm. His shots very rarely call attention to themselves by how gorgeous they are Mm. and yet find a flaw in them.
0: Yeah, yeah he's
1: it's almost innate when you talk to him when people talk to him in interviews about the way that he constructs his stories he makes it sound as though he doesn't really think about it a lot i think he has obviously he's a student of film i think he has absorbed so much cinematic storytelling that that's a language that just comes second nature to him now.
0: Yeah, yeah and he
1: doesn't have to think about it he doesn't have to think about why going from
0: this wide shot to this two shot makes sense he just knows that it does yeah, And uh, I, I was actually just thinking about this recently When I, I heard we had this assignment If there was any kind of Actually like ideological through line Through John Carpenter's movies mm-hmm. And um, I'm looking over his filmography here in front of me uh, He did Dark Star, that was a comedy mm-hmm. He did um, uh, Starman was a little bit more soulful I guess that's yeah. sort of like his one prestige picture If he has one That's a family movie uh, in a lot of ways and, yeah. and what, then he also A nominee did, for Academy Award That's true And, uh, and there's also uh Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which is kind of part special effects showcase and part comedy because it stars Chevy Chase. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's an odd duck, but that That, that one's a little bit out of his filmography. Apart from those, there is a strong streak of kind of working class nihilism mm. running through his films. He actually feels uh, very bitterly about the state of the world. Yeah. If you look at his films, uh, he works in horror a lot. Yeah. Horror is, and... You can argue this if you like, but I, I believe this very strongly. Horror is a, a genre that appeals to our nihilism, appeals to our sense of destruction.
1: I think there are exceptions uh, to that, but as a genre as a whole, it's, yeah, it's that's not, true. It
0: yeah. doesn't t- tend to be a very hopeful genre because people are killed <laughs> in horror movies well, or people are terrified in horror movies. There's monsters. Yeah, It's proof that there's evil. It, can it be overcome? Yes, that's the catharsis, but we're there to see the fear.
1: I, I was thinking about, um, and, and it's interesting because it's mm. basically like the other side of the coin of what you just said. You're mm. talking about this working class nihilism this sort Mm. of um, meat and potatoes. I like my action movies action-y. I like my horror movies horror-y. But there's this element of me that I just don't trust the state of affairs. I look at a lot of John Carpenter's work, and I think this is something that has largely been overlooked because so many of his movies have over time become mainstream. Mm. I see a very subversive streak. Absolutely. Through a lot of his films, And uh, almost all of his movies, on some level, are undermining... Uh, uh authority institutions genre expectations uh dark stars of course you know is is an existentialist film uh assaults on precinct 13 is uh very much about where cops and criminals like meet up in the center in a crisis mm. uh something like halloween is about the failure of psychology to explain evil mm. on that level it's actually a pretty good parallel with uh, uh the exorcist um Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. are very uh, cynical and satirical about the locales uh, that they're doing. Also, they're very mistrustful of authority. A distrust of authority is... Throughout his entire work Yeah yeah. yeah. Um, I mean even Prince of Darkness We're gonna meet Satan What is he? A jar of green liquid Subversion <laughs> he's, 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 Also he's explained six, Entirely a, through science The six foot thermos Of NyQuil In the yeah. basement of a church Big Trouble in Little China Is about a big Macho action hero Who spends 90% Of the movie Being completely useless
0: And who's unconscious For the climax yeah.
1: and, <laughs> who, and who And who All of the people of color Do all the cool stuff uh-huh. And get everything done And all he does Is look cool At the end of it He,
0: he thinks he's the hero Of the story when he has it he that's gets to it. throw
1: a knife at the end yeah. that's it that's all he does the entire movie yeah, no, fucking great It's so subver- <laughs> that movie and predator are the two most subversive action yeah. movies of the 1980s they're just so they, they work want- on the sur- superficial level but once you start thinking about them, you
0: realize they fucking they're, they're, hate commando yeah, yeah they fucking
1: She's hate a- that shit
0: yeah, the, the macho, the macho guys who really yeah. love Big Trouble in Little China doesn't make any sense to me because it's like an anti-macho film. Yeah, but, it's very, it's very uh, Going back a little bit, he did yeah. make Halloween in 1978. Uh, what more can we say about Halloween that hasn't been said already? It's the, one of the best. It's uh, codify the the slasher as a genre as it has been written many times. Uh, um, it's, it's beautifully told. It's wonderfully filmed. Uh, Dean Cundey it, filmed it. He ended up working with Spielberg. It's incredibly bloody efficient. The, yeah. And if you know anything about the production, you'd see that John Carpenter was also one of those any trick that works kind of filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, you know, like a lot of forced perspective and weird lighting tricks that just yeah. got better shots. They
1: were supposed to take place in the fall because it's Halloween. They did not shoot in the fall. They had literally one garbage bag full of dry leaves. It's also and they had to so, pick yeah. it up again after every shot and moving it around,
0: it also takes place in Haddonfield, Illinois, and yet there's like schools with doors that open directly to the outdoors. They wouldn't have those in, in a state where it, now there's like snow. There's
1: <laughs> also palm trees. If you look like like if yeah, you look like yeah. one block away, there's all these deep focus shots of the town, and like they were careful not to put them in the foreground. Too often,
0: although there's a couple. No, there's, uh, <laughs> there's also a few shots where you see like smoke drifting by in front of the camera, and that's actually just John Carpenter smoking right next to the camera.
1: I, I, part of me wondered, this is probably not true, but there's actually I noticed one other movie where I've seen that, and it's actually The Blob with Steve McQueen. You can see somebody's cigarette There's, smoke there's on one scene the where Steve McQueen is just talking to—I forget who his co-lead is in that—but he's just talking to his romantic lead. It's not- no, it's not Pat Neal, it's uh, I don't think so, uh, but uh in any case, talking to his romantic lead, and it's just a conversation they're talking about oh, that blob's gonna blah. blah, blah. <laughs> and uh but you can just see this whiff of smoke, and if you've ever known a smoker, you know. That is only coming from a cigarette. That is exactly its cigarette height. <laughs> that is thicker at the at the at the bloom and then it like dissipates over space. It's totally just someone smoking off camera. They just left it in. Probably you never noticed it until the Criterion Collection cleaned it up. John Carpenter is a huge fan of old horror movies, and he puts his old horror movies in his movies. Uh, and mm. some of his horror movies, um, partially as a callback, partially for fun, partially to set tone and set these things in sort of a grander tradition, I think. And um, there's a part of me that's just like, eh, they smoked in the blob, who gives a shit. Mm. Homage. <sighs> oh, <my. laughs>
0: <laughs> it's probably not the case. Uh, um, but uh, what? what's, do you have any sort of like... Unique observations about Halloween, like the, something that only you kind of have th- on onto about the movie.
1: Not only me, I, I think that the thing that people don't talk about, and that was something I already addressed, and we've mm. talked about before, and we've discussed it, which is um, Halloween is uh, you know was taking place at a time when uh, psychology was experiencing a cultural
0: uh, renaissance, a new mm. wave of respect. As well, they watch gave any TV movie from this yeah. era, the hero, the hero of every TV movie of the 1970s was a psychologist who came in at the beginning of the third act uh, to explain everything.
1: Uh, 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 Philip Kaufman's version of Evade of the Body Snatchers deals with similar topics. Um, but uh, it, it John Carpenter's film is about how we have a respected psychology. It's played by Donald fucking Pleasence, very respectable actor. Mm-hmm. And his whole thing is psychology is worthless. That thing is evil. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is just used to just make Michael Myers scary. He cannot be explained by science. But I think once you start delving into that, you realize that this is a world in which There is no institution that will save you. There is no explanation through science or observation that makes sense mm. sometimes things are just scary and I think that's something that yeah. makes Halloween more frightening than a lot of other slasher movies which have perhaps a cleaner motivation for the killings mm. um, something like Friday the 13th Jason and his mother have very clear motivation for why they do what they do yeah. Freddy has a very clear motivation for why he does what he does Michael Myers is literally just evil which is one of the reasons why it always bugged me when they said no 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 Lori was his sister and that's why yeah, I'm like yeah. well, what the fuck is that he killed his sister he wanted to kill more and now he's doing it again that's it
0: why is he killing? Because that's what he does. Because that's what he does. It's right. what he wants. Why do you think the Michael Myers' face is just this expressionless, white, blank thing? Yeah. Because it doesn't have a feeling. In the script, he's just called The Shape. The Shape. It's not yeah. even a person with a history.
1: It's worth remembering that John Carpenter wrote the majority of his own movies.
0: Yeah. Um, so in addition and in to... In fact, he, he had a special stipulation, and I love this, Yeah. that he, every film of his is technically called John Carpenter's... Halloween. And That's actually always, like the official title. And, and the title fact, card always says that. Yeah, the title card always says that, and it's always presented in the same way. It says John Carpenter's first. The title will fade in. Then the John Carpenter's will fade out. Then the title will fade out. Yeah, Every single film. Yeah. It's presented that way.
1: And, uh, you know, we can talk a lot of bit uh, about, um, you know, film authorship and how it's an ensemble production, mm-hmm. and uh, yet there are some filmmakers who do more. They just wear more hats, and it's harder to argue putting their name on it. Um, unless you argue against it always, which is perfectly fair. Um, John Carpenter uh, would direct, write, mm. produce. I think he edited it a few times. And most notably, well not most notably, but perhaps most
0: surprisingly, and very few other filmmakers do this, he composed the scores for most of his own mm. movies. And And he was good. He composed his own scores. A lot of people have criticized his scores for being kind of repetitive. And that's because he would actually improvise the scores like there were silent movies. He'd shoot them without uh, without music because you have to. And but he would play the film back and would just sort of riff. Yeah. He'd just get it, get on his guitar and just sort of start to figure out what the score was going to be for there. And I actually
1: think he was kind of genius in the way that he scored his movies, because a lot of his scores are a little repetitive. You've made that point. But repetitive is memorable.
0: Yeah.
1: Not every great film score is memorable. However, most memorable film scores, I think, are great mm. because they connect to you, they become indelibly linked to their story. Um, and as a result, they really pop out. Halloween is one of the most memorable film scores of all time. I think if you're making any list of the best film scores of all time and Halloween isn't at least in the top ten, I disagree with your list. That's just (laughs) all there is to it. I think there's an argument that it's number one. It's simplicity Mm. is everything. When he did, and we're skipping a little bit ahead, Escape from New York, he did an Electronica uh, score for it. Mm. That actually helped promote the electronica movement in music that was actually a big key moment where sort of mainstream awareness and acceptance and pushing that medium forward it's really cool um john carpenter did some tv movies i haven't seen them all uh around the late 80s uh sorry late 70s he did someone's watching me i haven't seen it he also did elvis starring kurt russell and this was their first collaboration together and this is something that they would work on Extensively.
0: And uh and Kurt Russell would end up playing an Elvis impersonator in the movie Three Thousand Miles to Graceland. So it all comes full circle. Which is a piece of shit, by the way. <laughs> it is an awful movie. Have you
1: seen Elvis recently? I don't think I've seen it since it, it came out on DVD. It's been a long time. Elvis is uh, is a TV movie about Elvis. It's a biopic. Um they were kind of big at the time, much like they are now. Stuff like the Buddy Holly story was mm. uh making Big Bank. Eddie and the cruisers.
0: I think it was a little later, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe not in the Cruisers. But but still,
1: you know, mm-hmm. and um, it's a very respectable film. I haven't seen it recently enough to say anything meaningful about it other than Kurt Russell is very well cast. Kurt Russell actually worked with Elvis as a child actor,
0: mm-hmm. so it
1: kind of worked out great. Kurt Russell great also clump. played Elvis briefly in Forrest Gump. Oh, that was that was Kurt Russell? Yeah,
0: okay. if memory serves, it was Kurt Russell anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but you are right. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a great clip, you can find it online, of Kurt Russell kicking Elvis in the shin.
1: Yeah, it's great. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Um, Tell me about... I'm curious, because this actually isn't one of my favorite Carpenter movies, even though I know a lot of people who love it to pieces. Mm. How do you feel about The Fog? I think The Fog is effective. I don't understand the people who really love The Fog, because it really is... I mean, apart from its wonderful visuals, kind of a nondescript story. It's a haunted mm. ship movie. Yeah, it's this, this uh, it island doesn't...
1: long ago screwed over a bunch of mm. pirates, and now this haunted fog comes in, and there are killer pirates in the fog, right. and they're exacting revenge on descendants.
0: And uh, a, It's a good spook story. Uh, yeah, it's a good, good kind of campfire story. I think it would have played better as a short within an anthology film, mm. uh, or as an episode of Tales from the Crypt, where it's just sort <laughs> You're of... You're just a, thinking a, about it like the Garfield Halloween special, where it's just all spooky right at the end. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, just the shots of... Of, like there's a lot of portent about how this you know, ship is coming back, and there's some spooky radio sounds at the beginning where it's I think it's Adrian Barbeau's, like she's the local DJ, and yeah. like he starts hearing these weird sort of ghostly signals and like has all these visions. Uh, and then there's some really spooky shots of the fog rolling in. It looks like it's glowing, and there's ghosts with glowing eyes in the fog, and all that stuff looks really cool, it's really, really scary. But it's not like Michael Myers, where I remember sort of the personality of the ghosts mm-hmm. or the motivation of the ghosts that well. For me, it's the but,
1: human cast that, that makes it just... I mean, everyone's good in it. I, yeah. I don't find fault in the actual actors. I find the focus of the film to be unfocused. Yeah, I think yeah. it's... They're trying to give you a sense of the whole town, and it feels like everything it's got a little... junk. too, ju- too everything got a little jumbled up in the editing room and as a result the film never really propels itself anywhere yeah um however uh it's it's gorgeous to look at there's certainly very creepy bits and uh it is once again carpenter talking about um well obviously there's a failure of religion we find out that uh, the priests of the mm-hmm. uh of the island were uh behind the the tragedy that is now befalling mm-hmm. them um and also, uh, you know, sort, so, of the, sort of the sort of sort of the morally uh, grotesque mm. history of America and how that will one day, yeah, yeah. come back to haunt us, literally.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Clergy are they rarely appear in John Carpenter's movies, and I'm also thinking of uh, you know, Prince of Darkness. Mm. Satan is in a church. Yeah, uh, the, the that that which we consider holy won't save us. Uh, yeah. uh, Sutter Kane from In the Mouth of Madness also lives in a church. The demons come from the church. Yeah, that's all John Carpenter's concerned with. Yeah, uh, God is absent in his movies, and I wouldn't be surprised if John Carpenter were just a, a stone cold atheist. Yeah, uh, the next film he did was Escape
1: from New York. I is,
0: love Escape from New York so much.
1: I love it too. It's very bitter. Uh, it's this kind of movie that I think a lot of people it, it, make very fun, but no, John Carpenter is like I don't know. He seemed pissed. When he was making Escape from New York, he openly admitted that he wasn't really a New York person. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the satire of New York was something that he really couldn't connect to personally. But uh, the idea of Kurt Russell, who was totally changing his public image, by the way, mm. by playing this unstoppable, amoral, badass outlaw Snake pliskin with an eye patch and a gravelly voice—he's he's Clint Eastwood. He's just doing—he's doing Clint Eastwood, but whatever. Like the in thing, fact, is, Lee
0: Van Cleef is in the movie. It's, <laughs> it's true.
1: pretty pretty obvious. It's true. But regardless, Kurt Russell wasn't known for that kind of role. That was a daring switcheroo for him, and he sells it. He's great. He's a wonderful hero in this movie. Um, oh, he's cool. also. A complete piece of shit, which I think mm-hmm. is something when you rewatch the movie, you realize he has opportunities when he's like he's sent into the island of Manhattan, which it's has been, been turned, turned into a, it's
0: been turned into a prison turned into in a the prison.
1: Future. There's no the guards or bars. He would just stuck there and do whatever they the want. The dis- distant em. future of 1997. And uh, yeah, he's got to rescue the president because Air Force One crash landed and Isaac Hayes plays the Duke of New York. Mm. A number one <laughs> who has kidnapped the president and is holding him for ransom. Um, and Saint has got to get him back, or his head will explode. Which is fun—a little bomb in his neck. It's really, really fun. But like when he—he's on his mission, he don't give a shit about anything else. He sees people like being attacked, mm. just walks by. That's yeah. not his job. That's the kind of thing that like most heroes just couldn't get away with. Well, and just the also, overall uh, tone of Escape from New York is just so pessimistic. It fits
0: well. And there's also this bit where uh, the president has been given a tracker, so we can locate him within the the New York prison and it turns out some other guy has it. It's actually a uh, buck flower uh, who shows oh, yeah. up in a, a couple different uh, John Carpenter movies. And whenever you see him in a movie, he's always a homeless guy. Yeah. like That was his stock and trade, a guy named Buck flower, but uh, I'm the president that guy. <laughs> uh, when he finds that thing and he says, well, the president's tracker isn't on him anymore. What do I do? And there's this moment where the movie just says, well, fuck if I know. And he just sort of (laughs) wanders out into the street and he picks up like a broken chair. and just sits down and and thinks about what he's going to do. Well, fuck, I got nothing here. And When do you see that in any movie? Somebody's just out of ideas. There's
1: something I really love about John Carpenter's writing, especially Mm -hmm. in something as kind of direct as Escape from New York, where... Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like he's flying on structure. He's probably got his big set pieces figured out, but yeah. getting from place to place, he's just kind of spitballing, but he's got a natural sense <laughs> of kind story. Of, kind of, and he, of winging
0: it. Yeah. And I
1: think that's one where, yeah, it feels like we hit a point in the screenplay where I don't know what comes next. I'm going to like lean into it and just make yeah. that part of it. It's awesome. Uh, yeah, and
0: it, and it has a very cynical ending. Uh, yeah. uh,
1: don't, don't ruin it. Let's, uh, let's, let's it. just move yeah. on. Uh, the next film he did was The Thing, which people hated.
0: There's a, a remake of a uh, Howard Hawks film from the 50s. Uh, it, the Thing from Another World yeah. is the original. It's very good. Uh, it's it's pretty good, but it is uh, very similar to a lot of monster movies of its ilk.
1: Yeah, bunch uh, of people trapped in a place,
0: monsters attacking them. Uh, it's a very silent movie. He didn't do the music for this one. anymore. Ennio Morricone did the music for this one. Yeah. Uh, some of that music was uh, reused for uh, The Hateful Eight. Which so. is a
1: movie that is kind of structured along similar lines yeah. as the thing, except it's a murder mystery. Um, But but yeah, yeah, a bunch of people are stuck in in an outpost in Antarctica and they dig up...
0: Grumpy bearded guys who you can't tell apart
1: anyway. No women, but that's actually kind of by design. It's Mm. all about macho bullshit being stuck in a room together. Mm. And also, now we can't trust each other because there's a shape-shifting alien that could be
0: any or all of us. Yeah, and and thanks to the wonderful special effects, that is one freaky friggin' monster. There's something that I love about the thing, and I think it's something that John Carpenter was very
1: interested in. A lot of people talk about how in horror, what you don't see scarier than what you do Mm. oftentimes that can be used to great effect with the thing john carpenter it's like he thought to himself i'm gonna take everything that would happen off camera and i'm gonna put it on camera and it's gonna be scarier than you could have possibly imagined Mm. whatever you would think is happening off camera not as scary as what you're gonna see (laughs) the scene with the defibrillator is nah. easily one Just of the really, scariest really, uh... moments. I love seeing that scene with people who don't know what's coming. Mm. Holy shit. There's so much fucked up nihilism there's so much fucked up violence and just absolutely terrifying gooey practical effects in the thing Mm. it came out in a summer season which was full of things like E.T. and man people were not uh, in the
0: mood it it opened the same day as E.T. if I recall oh no it opened the same day as Blade Runner
1: yeah I think it was Blade Runner Um, but regardless yeah Blade Runner Blade Runner tanks too people were not in the mood Mm. E.T. was the shit that year people wanted to feel wonderful things about a boy befriending an alien and horrifying aliens Were anathema People Mm. did not like it People did not get it And it's one of the movies that got saved years later By people just saying You know it's actually really fucking good And indeed it is And Mm. nowadays it usually tops many lists Of the best remakes ever made And I think with good cause Uh, He then did a Stephen King movie called Christine About a killer car That should be stupid Christine fucking
0: rocks Christine is is really really good I feel like I love The Thing. Don't get me wrong. I think yeah. it's really terrific. I think it's really tense. Uh, it's just masterful filmmaking. Its use of silence is really great, and I do love its nihilistic ending. Uh, some people have started to overanalyze that. Well, it turns out, which of them is a monster? It doesn't matter. You're supposed to know. not know. You're supposed to not know. Yeah, that's that's the, the whole point. point. Ambiguity and, uh, is the point. Uh, and I, I feel I like... People look at ambiguity as a puzzle <sighs> that needs solving. Yeah. Like You can make up your own mind, but that's not the truth. I, I feel like uh, the thing reached a mo- like has gone like maybe a hair of being a little overrated. Uh, oh, I don't, pe- I don't pe- agree. I pe- pe- think it's people timer. F- people f- like glom onto it maybe a little too tightly. I think it's really great. I think it's an all time. I love it. Uh, I think Christine needs a, like, to, like, get that little overflow from the thing and give it to Christine.
1: I agree. Because I think Christine amazing.
0: is really, really amazing. And I think it's actually really about something very salient, about how that sort of macho 1950s thing that we were worshipping to no end in the 1980s mm-hmm. during, like, this big wave of conservatism it's that was going someone,
1: on. It's about someone who was overtaken and driven evil by their nostalgia. Exactly. and nostalgia uh, for an they didn't even have.
0: Specifically 50s nostalgia. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's about that... This macho muscle car attitude, the greaser attitude, Mm -hmm. and also this halcyon uh, post-war era when everything was, quote, great if you're straight and white, uh, is really actually kind of a dark period where there was a lot of of death and suffering. Yeah. Which, that's very Stephen King, but I think it's also very John Carpenter. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised they didn't work together more often. I know. Christine is actually, it's pretty faithful. And
1: I got to tell you, the visual effects in Christine are... Mm. most of them are practical, but things are all practical. Yeah. They're fucking amazing. Yeah. The scene where Christine fixes herself (laughs) is one of the most incredible visual effects sequences ever in terms of how it is delivered dramatically Mm. um it's very simple they just did it in reverse but my Mm. god it looks good and the scene where christine goes on a killing spree like while it's on fire (laughs) is absolutely (laughs) terrible it's not terrible terrifying terrifying terribly terrifying
0: like holy God, that's scary as fuck. There's a scene where Christine forces herself down like a narrow alleyway, trashing her own body to get to a guy. It's it's just really, really terrifying. Again, it's like the thing. It has just incredibly convincing special effects. Yeah. Just with a living car you're, yeah. you're convinced that thing is alive Yeah maybe Again
1: I think Stephen King Always had a fascination With 50's nostalgia mm-hmm. I think John Carpenter Just hated it yeah. <laughs> I think he was ready To move the fuck <laughs> on
0: It's like one of the last lines Of dialogue yeah. is I hate 50's music um, And uh, I, I find it really odd That the new It movies Is about like Late 80's nostalgia it's, It fits uh, but, like, not, We have no, this attitude really About the 50's because, like, We look over uh, the
1: bad stuff We think about the Halcyon pop culture stuff yeah we're not looking, we're not interrogating just how fucking awful it could have been. Uh, well, I suppose so. I think it fits. Mm. Um, anyway, the next thing he did was Starman, which I haven't seen in years. Whitney, how long has it been since you've seen Starman? Um,
0: I saw Starman uh, to prepare for a, a Popcorn Mafia podcast uh, okay. back when Great Drake was still doing that. So more
1: recently than so, I have. So kind of recently. What are your um, thoughts on Starman? Because I don't think I have anything salient to say about
0: it. This is his most emotional picture. It's his most human picture. Mm. He, uh, he. like I said, this one kind of stands apart in that it's not wholly nihilistic. Uh, it's about a space alien who crashes to Earth. It like the thing. It's sort of a shapeshifter, but it takes the form of uh, the main character's dead husband,
1: Karen Allen. Karen right? Allen, yeah, yeah, Karen
0: Allen's dead husband, and, he's, and the creature is played by Jeff Bridges, uh,
1: who was nominated uh, for an Oscar for this. Only person mm. to get an Oscar nomination for, mm. I think, any John Carpenter movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, crazy. I'd be interested to f- find out who is dominated nominated for an actor, uh, best a- actor Oscar for playing a non-human character. Well, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, uh, um, you know, Willem Dafoe is another one, but uh, uh, Michael Shannon played a fictional character
1: in *Nocturnal Animals*. He's mm, human, but he does, doesn't
0: exist. Doesn't count. Okay. Doesn't count. Like yeah. specifically, not like a creature. Yeah, mm. Um and high count. Someone won Academy Award for that. Oh, maybe so. Yeah, um, I would say the Joker is nominally. Yeah, nominal. No, can't. I do um, He's human. What are you uh, do you got? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. It doesn't work. Uh, yeah, but it, it is more about how uh, the alien and Karen Allen are kind of using one another to learn about their own humanity. He's the you know, the creature is learning about the way humans function in a much more mechanical way, but she's mm. learning to sort of explore her emotions over getting over her dead husband and kind of essentially having another chance with him, even mm. though it's really this creature. Interesting. Um, well, after Starman, yeah. uh, he moved it, on to big yeah, it, and it it feels. It feels like Spielberg. Yeah. He's trying to do a Spielberg shtick, and I think he does it reasonably well. It has, a, it has a following. People do enjoy the movie. I've never heard anyone say they hated it. Yeah, it's, it's not really talked about because I think a lot of John Carpenter's fans are uh, you you get Not into so sentimental John, Not so sentimental And also you get into John Carpenter When you're in like Junior high or high <laughs> school And you know You're not sort of ready For yeah. a tale of You know Mourning the loss Of a dead husband When yeah. you're 13
1: uh, Big Trouble in Little mm. China Came next Big Trouble in Little China Is one of my favorite movies um, <laughs> It's absolutely wonderful It's very imaginative um, And yeah It's about A trucker Played by Kurt Russell Who gets swept up In a, an ancient battle Between good and evil Between mm. Chinese immigrants um, who have brought over their mysticism and their mythology mm-hmm. uh, to America. It's got a bunch of incredible characters, amazing visual effects. Um, the fights aren't as good as they could be now, but for the time, American Kung Fu movies just weren't that interesting. They actually do this great technique uh, where in order to get like really exciting impact shots, mm-hmm. they would just put a dummy in the foreground and have someone beat the shit out of it. Mm-hmm. So like you're fighting with a pole just for a split second, like a flash frame of like a dummy in the foreground, which is the wig and just hear him hit it. And the crunching noise, it's so effective.
0: (laughs) Like John Carpenter,
1: like he, he, he liked Kung Fu movies, but he wanted to bring his own flavor to it. And he absolutely did. Hmm. Um, And yeah, it's all about how everyone is interesting except the white guy. (laughs) (laughs) There's an opening to the movie that kind of subverts that where uh, the guy, uh, character egg Shan played by Victor Wong. Victor Wong is in there. I think think it's in there. Who plays Egg Shen? Let me look that up. Yeah, but I think it's Victor Wong. Um, He uh, he talks about how Jack Burton was a great hero. Mm. And apparently that was a studio note because they thought that Jack Burton wasn't a good enough. wasn't like clearly a hero Mm -hmm. to which John Carpenter talks in the commentary track, like, which was the point. (laughs) But whatever. Mm. I added this intro so that they'd feel better about it.
0: Yeah. And this was actually one that Carpenter didn't write. Uh, This was actually uh, adapted by W.D. Richter, who is also known for writing. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. So this guy has some really weird interests. I love Rector's work. But both He's so both cool. of the, those movies are just like so off the wall. They're yeah. jam packed with incident. Uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Even, I want. I watched that thing like five times before I could even follow what the hell was going on. In that I still movie. can't. Who cares? It's amazing. Yeah, it, it's it's just such a like.
1: It's it's an, the perfect double
0: feature. Buck Banzai
1: yeah. and Big Trouble. Perfect double.
0: Buck feature. Rubanzai, I i is not a well made movie, but <laughs> but it's incredible. Like I, I can't not look I would, away from. I would it. argue it's,
1: it's well made. It's just quirky. Uh, anyway, Big Trouble in Little China is fantastic. Please mm. see it if you haven't already. Uh, Prince of Darkness came next. This one, mm. this is where a, a Carpenter's film started becoming kind of hit and miss with some people. For that That's mm. a freight train of mostly classic movies. The Thing would eventually get mm. uh, recontextualized. But, uh, you know, Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, that's a run. And when you retroactively realize that the thing was also brilliant, that's one of the most amazing runs any director has ever had. (laughs) I argue that that run continues with Prince of Darkness, but some people don't dig this
0: one. Uh, I actually don't dig it either. I I think uh, like Big Trouble in Little China, he became a little bit too enamored of the like everything in the kitchen sink approach to making his movies. And there's so much going on in, in Prince of Darkness that the rules aren't clear. I think that's kind of the point, though. Like, well, sometimes if you're watching something like *Evil Dead 2*, where the ghosts can do like just about anything, well, that's Mm. a slapstick movie. It has a slapstick quality. It's Mm. okay if things are kind of random. Uh, With Prince of Darkness, the things just sort of stretch every which way. And there's not really a whole lot to root for Yeah, until the climax when you finally figure out what the hell is going on.
1: Anyway, it's about uh, there's a mission in Los Mm. Angeles that is being closed down. And it turns out in the basement, there's an ancient evil, which turns out is Mm. Satan itself. And it is a green fluid. Mm -hmm. And Donald Pleasance plays a priest who enlists uh, Victor Wong and a bunch of Mm. uh, science students to try to figure out exactly what it is to quantify it scientifically Mm. evil itself and uh, do something about it. And what they discover is that they can't. Mm. Um, I love the way the, uh, the evil and the horror cascades, Mm -hmm. In this movie And just comes across In more and more Absolutely intense waves Um, Is it Dennis Dunn Who's in both of those movies As well Uh, Yes Dennis Dunn Is really really wonderful Uh, He spends like The second half of the movie Like trapped in a closet Hiding from monsters (laughs) Even then he's amazing Mm -hmm. Great actor I wish he'd gotten More of a career Um but uh, anyway, I think it's I think it's creepy. I like the fact that it's hard to quantify. It's about being hard to quantify. It's mm-hmm. about what happens when physics lie to us. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, deserves better credit than it does. Uh, this was followed by They Live, which we recently talked about in mm-hmm. our our podcast about dystopian movies. So we'll make it quick. Rowdy Roddy Piper plays a working class schmo in Reagan era America when theoretically the economy is doing great, but actually most people are suffering and miserable. Mm. And uh, he discovers a pair of sunglasses that allow him to see the world as it really is and cut to the quick, all of the subliminal messaging that we take for granted every day. And he realizes that every single thing around us is designed to keep the working class and Mm. lower classes subservient to the rich.
0: Oh, also aliens. Who are also literally (laughs) aliens.
1: <laughs> um, they're, they're it's so fucking great it's so fucking deeply political it's yeah. so it's one it really, of the more it, powerful indictments yeah, really, of the 1980s it really
0: nails uh, just the injustices of the Reagan era yeah. uh, never mind that Roddy Roddy Piper is, isn't the best actor uh, no he's
1: fine the, the, but he's
0: not If it, Kurt Russell probably yeah. would
1: have been better the, typically the, uh, if you see a John Carpenter movie that isn't great imagine the lead is played by Kurt Russell all of a sudden it's better
0: it's, yeah he probably wrote just, it for they a just had the right actor vibe. Um, but yeah, I think he's actually really, really good. Um, the the fight between Rowdy Roddy Piper and Keith David in the alleyway mm-hmm. really annoyed me when I was a teenager.
1: Yeah, because it goes on because it, it goes time. on a
0: long, long time. It's like, oh, they just put this in because he's a wrestler and they want to see him do wrestling yeah. moves. But it does actually have a thematic purpose. A lot of people mm-hmm. have pointed out that it's it's that hard to change someone's mind slows the film down a bit but sure. i think it does serve a function it's
1: fair yeah. it's fair uh mm. and i it's one of my favorite john carpenter films mm. uh he took a four-year hiatus before he directed memoirs of an invisible man mm. uh there hadn't been a high profile invisible man movie in a while and the movie uses some pretty top-flight visual effects actually well like, fact- it's a good looking yeah. invisible man movie mm. uh however because it stars chevy chase I think it gets muddled because the script isn't actually that funny, mm. but Chevy Chase plays it like it's funny, yeah, and it's not. And I don't think John Carpenter like, had a strong enough hand in deciding, is this an actual kind of a thriller that just mm. happens to star Chevy Chase, or is this a comedy? Well, this I think feels, he's just too much in the middle.
0: This feels most like a director for hire thing. Yeah. I think this might have been his biggest budget. Uh, because it has such state-of-the-art special I effects. I think
1: Escape from L.A. was technically his biggest.
0: Oh, yeah, maybe so. I think that, was,
1: that was the one that actually gave him
0: some money. Yeah, it was but, s- yeah. several years later, and the special effects are ten times worse. That's true. Uh, <laughs> the special effects worse. in that movie are terrible. Mostly quite like, bad. Like I lo- I, I'm I, a defender of that movie. I actually really love it, but the special effects are awful in Escape yeah. from L.A. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because he's clearly doing this to sort of showcase a lot of special effects. There's a lot of uh, use of CGI, which was uncommon at the time. Uh, and like, there's a scene right at the beginning where uh, Chevy Chase, who's invisible, chews a piece of gum to show that he's invisible, and we actually see like the wrapper yeah. unfold and the floating piece of gum, and we see it like mash up in his teeth.
1: I saw this in theaters yeah. when they came out, and man, that fucking blew my mind. Yeah, that guy. There's a, a there's a scene effect. where he smokes
0: a cigarette, and you get to see the smoke going into his lungs. Oh, uh, there, that's so cool! All kinds of really cool visual things with yeah. the special effects in that movie, and I think John Carpenter might have been just seeing if he could do uh, like an effects based studio picture
1: yeah it's uh, just it's just kind of neither not, fish nor fowl, though like it's never I, I really think, exciting it's never really funny but it's never less than watchable
0: it's, it's a good thriller he worked with sam neill which he'd support yeah. with sam neill again um Yeah. Chevy Chase is is clearly the one stealing. It's more of a Chevy Chase film, I think, than a John Carpenter film. Yeah, it doesn't bear the nihilism. It's not him. Yeah, this this is this is his Spartacus. Um,
1: He did. uh, Next, he did a movie called Body Bags in which he played an undead coroner, which was a
0: TV special.
1: It's a TV special and arguably a pilot. We might actually cover it someday and cancel too soon Mm. if I can get that confirmed. But it's a horror anthology. John Carpenter wrote a couple of segments. Uh, the best segment is one where Stacy Keach plays a guy who's losing his hair and ends up getting alien hair.
0: <laughs> like each hair is a, a little like a tiny, little, like a little the alien, alien snake monster. Thing. Like that's an alien larva. Yeah. Real,
1: real creepy. image. Mean, yes. it's cool. Um, uh, body bags is fun, but I don't have a lot to say about it. Yeah. Um, in the mouth of madness came next. Uh, John Carpenter had played with Lovecraftian things before, particularly in the thing and Prince of darkness. Um, And indeed, these three films make up what is called his apocalypse trilogy, which are talking about how evil will one day come back and destroy the world. Which was uh, pretty loose,
0: uh, yeah. Just thematically, they—they. It's not—it's not
1: a real trilogy. They don't don't connect in any meaningful way. I'd I'd be surprised if he thought if he was doing that on purpose. Even Mm. they just three films of a piece in his filmography. But yeah, it's about a guy who is investigating the disappearance of an author, horror author, whose books are so scary they drive people mad. Mm -hmm. And what he finds is that the horror author. Has disappeared into a town that's supposed to exist only within the author's books. What a great, fun premise. And holy shit, is this movie scary!
0: It's really scary, it's really existential. It deals with these really weird, heady ideas, like not in that stoner sort of way, either. Like, this is more like. I stayed up way too late reading Poe yeah. and now I'm just terrified of the fabric of the universe itself. It's He's talking about the very nature of horror. And yeah. like,
1: if horror exists to scare you, mm-hmm. what is the zenith of that? Yeah,
0: what, what's the end goal of that?
1: Yeah. If that's what horror is, then horror would surely destroy us. Mm-hmm. And, it's not explicitly based off of Lovecraft it is however and I haven't seen Color Out of Space I heard that might be the new one but as far as I'm concerned it's the best Lovecraftian movie it understands the underlying themes of uh, madness of cosmic horror of uh, protagonists who are so completely out of their element that all they can do is lose their mind Yeah, Yeah. Um, fantastic fucking movie Mm -hmm. um let's see uh, after that he did a movie that sucks uh, Village of the Damned <laughs> uh, Village of the Damned has is not it, been uh, reclaimed the way The Thing has as no, like one of the great remakes and, because it sucks
0: it, it is a remake it was a remake of a 50s a British 50s film uh, um,
1: I think early 60s actually oh, yeah, 19, like 1960
0: uh, 19, yeah they're around Okay, yeah, uh, with starring
1: George Sanders it's good original mm. original is really fun
0: but cool yeah game. uh in in the in the remake, uh, mysterious wave uh, fall up, befalls this small town in America. Everybody passes out at the same time, and when they wake up, I, I think there's ten or twelve women have
1: every every woman who is yeah. capable of being pregnant
0: in town is yeah. now pregnant. Is now pregnant. Uh, yeah. and and you know, of course, there's all these investigations. What's really going on? All the kids are born at the same time. And they're all creepy stone faced children with white hair. Yeah. And it turns out, of course, that they have psychic powers and they can their eyes light up and they can influence you to do horrible things. Of course, there's space aliens. There's a space alien subplot that's really stupid. Yeah. Uh, the, original... the investigation doesn't work. I think the two leads are awful because the two leads are played by Christy Alley, who's miscast, uh-huh. and Christopher Reeve, who's really miscast. Yeah, he's not he's not working at all here. Um Mark Hamill is fun as a preacher
1: in this movie, mm. but otherwise the cast is pretty, pretty lacking. Here's the thing. The original Village of the Damned, when John Carpenter did the thing, he took ideas from the movie that they couldn't do mm. and he put them in the new one. And that gave the movie kind of a focus and an identity and a sense of purpose. Mm. His remake of the Village of the Damned kind of siphoned that all away as he got distracted by some modern things. Mm. The original Village of the Damned is about, frankly, a very male paranoia. What if my kids aren't mine? Yeah, yeah. And it's about feeling alienated from those children And worrying about oh god are the children Going to destroy us and our way of life Which is another parental anxiety Or at the very least the anxiety of old people As new generations come in and assume uh, Control and power over society Um, John Carpenter's Village of the Damned gets really sidetracked by the alien shit yeah, like really yeah. fuck like it doesn't even amount to anything because yeah it's aliens of and, course and it is but like
0: it's it's so unusual for john carpenter to do that because he rarely felt the need to like explain stuff that was not yeah. his his mo no maybe he got, he, maybe he got well,
1: some too much slack for in the mouth of madness because it wasn't well liked when it came out and he thought yeah, he it was, it was actually a, a
0: bit of a bomb and in fact yeah. uh this in the Mouth of Madness was not well liked when it came out. It didn't get great reviews. Uh, it, it, I think it was a January, or February release. It was like January. I January release. Yeah. Uh, in the Mouth of Madness came out, or uh, Village of the Damned came out later that same year. Yeah. So uh, he, he's still working really hard. It's still pretty prolific. But yeah, yeah. this one also wasn't really well received.
1: Uh, actually, no, um, no, sorry. It came out. It technically came out in 1995, but I do think it was less than a year between them. Right. Technically, Did, they came out in, in the, the Mouth freelance.
0: of Madness came out in January of '95. It was
1: there was there was a cutoff, but yeah. Anyway, there was really right. close. Um, but yeah, Village of the Damned, it's like John Carpenter had something he kind of wanted to say about the desensitization of children, but it feels really tacked on at the yeah, end. It just feels like a... his heart wasn't in this one. Mm. Hard to say. Uh, maybe it just maybe it just didn't work. Sometimes that happens. Uh, he followed up with Escape from L.A., which people hated because mm. it took all the stuff that was supposed to be funny from Escape from New York, but like wasn't super funny, and made it actually funny mm. because John Carpenter knows L.A., and he knows what parts of L.A. suck. <laughs> he knows when L.A. is fucking stupid kind of a, and he's it's going for kind it. of a goofy
0: town and he's kind yeah. of taking the piss out of L.A. He's making a... He's essentially remaking uh, Escape from New York. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, totally the same, the same it's the plot. same movie, beat for beat, scene for scene. There's yeah. like some identical shots that characters have direct analogs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the repeated joke uh, in Escape from New York was, I thought you were dead. And It's in like Escape oh, from Snake Pliskin, I thought you were dead. And, and <laughs> because uh, Escape from L.A. is so concerned with vanity, it was, I thought you were taller. Snake Plissken Thought you'd be taller Yeah it's a silly movie It's Mm. a movie in which Snake
1: Plissken Surfs a tidal wave Down Sunset Boulevard Mm. With Peter Fonda And surfs directly Into the back seat Of Steve Buscemi's Cadillac
0: Yeah His convertible Cadillac
1: Yeah (laughs) Fucking awesome Mm. Is what that is You either agree That that's awesome Or you are not On the wavelength Of this movie Mm. at all If you're expecting This to be badass You're in the wrong theater This is a comedy And it's a funny comedy
0: The the scene's of uh, Pam Greer as a trans woman haven't aged very well but no. a, a, apart from that yeah the, the, it, it ends with the hero hang gliding into Disneyland dropping sticks of dynamite Snake Plissken bombs Disneyland in this movie how can you not <laughs> love it and it ends with an ending that's even more cynical than Escape from New York So I, uh, I feel like this was the last
1: movie that we've um, ever seen where John Carpenter felt like he was just genuinely having fun Everything well, else having, after this, they're not bad movies necessarily, but it feels like he's not playful anymore.
0: Well, having fun, and I think speaking to that streak of nihilism within him, because uh, the film he did after this was actually several years later. He did, uh, or two years later, two he years did later Vampires, ago. based on the novel. Uh, and novel is
1: better, by the way. The novel's quite good. I
0: actually haven't read the novel, but yeah, yeah. it's about uh, a group of vampire hunters who work for the church. Yeah, Vampires are out there, the church wants to cover it up, and they've hired this... Loosely knit group of black-clad, leather, cigarette-smoking, misogynist badasses. Well, the idea to, uh, the to I- take them out.
1: The idea is uh, the the <clears throat> the uh, the Catholic Church knows that vampires are real and that vampires mm-hmm. need to be destroyed. However, vampires are so unstoppable and evil in the world of John Carpenter's vampires and the mm-hmm. book it's based on that the life expectancy for that job is incredibly low. And so all of the vampire hunters are incredibly hedonistic because every minute could be their last. Yeah, um, It's an idea, you know, it, it's an interesting idea to like focus on these characters who have nothing to lose and act like it because mm-hmm. they have resigned themselves to their death. Yeah, um, James Woods, is in this and maybe his last likable film role. Um, well, uh,
0: which is weird because he plays such a dickhead, but he's, he's a
1: dick, but you know, he's, yeah. he's got a justification for it. He's actually mm. a good fit for John Carpenter. I,
0: I remember uh, his last la- one of his friends has been turned into a vampire by mm. the end. And at the end, he's like, okay, I'm not going to kill you. And then he says, via con Dios. And I remember in Roger Ebert's review, he says, that's not something you say to a vampire. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I will say this, John Carpenter hmm. is not what I would call a feminist filmmaker. I that, think he's made no, some films that have treated women well, I think he's made some films that treated women very badly, it's, and it's, vampires uh, treats women very
0: badly. It is incredibly
1: misogynist. Uh, yeah. Cheryl Daniel, Lee's in this movie, she and she's, just, she's been bitten by a vampire, and it's half just the movie's been Dan-
0: mistreated and Daniel Baldwin and, yeah. treats
1: her so fucking terrible. Like yeah, she's turned to turn it. into a monster, but threatens man, the movie neck, relishes yeah. In her suffering In a no, way that's was, really uncomfortable
0: And, and you know I, I do think that John Carpenter was trying to make a point About how these badasses are also just really horrible to women But he had to mistreat a woman in order to depict that I, I, I so. don't think it comes across very no, well No, no, no I, I would love to see a version of this Like, directed by a woman Oh, yeah, that'd be cool um, like, It just doesn't put up with that
1: bullshit Yeah, we, he only had two more features left in him The next one was Ghosts of Mars Which we already talked about uh, which I think gets a, I think, also think gets a bad reputation. It takes place, and maybe this is an apology for vampires. It takes place in a future society which is entirely matri- uh, matriarchal. Yeah, yeah, women rule everything. Uh, and Natasha Henstridge leads a team of badasses to an outpost in Mars, which has ostensibly for a prison transfer, not unlike Assault on Precinct Thirteen. The bad guys played by Ice Cube. He's the most badass dude in the universe. He doesn't quite mm. sell it. Um, <laughs> But the thing so is,
0: Desolation that they, Jones.
1: They they discover uh, that the town has been like overrun and destroyed, and it turns out that they've been overrun by the original inhabitants of Mars, who of course, suddenly failed allegories for First Nation people. Uh, they rise up, they take over the bodies of whoever is living, and they reclaim what well, is well, theirs. I, the,
0: whoever's dead, I think they well, take over the bodies. You of know the what dad, I mean? Like yeah. they were
1: recently dead, and yeah. now they they had
0: bodies to take over and. Um, a lot of people didn't like the design of the evil, the lead evil guy. Cause he looks a lot like Marilyn Manson with the pale skin and the I piercings. I don't care. He looks fine. It's fine. It's, it's, it's not amazing design, mm-hmm. but he's fine. Um,
1: it's a, it's an okay movie, but it's it's definitely lower wrong John Carpenter. It's, lower it's better rung, than Village of the Damned. He's, he's, uh, he's but, working like, with a lower
0: budget than I think he wanted. Uh, yeah, is pretty not, high
1: overall for John Carpenter, yeah. but not great. I think he obviously wanted uh, to do more of a blockbuster. But
0: yeah, from uh, In the Mouth of Madness all the way through the end of his career, uh, his films weren't well-received. Uh, he, yeah. he just sort of fell out. And a lot of people... The landscape changed. Uh, there wasn't yeah. a market
1: for these kind of mid-range movies the way that there used to be. Yeah. And as a result, it was harder to get them noticed even when they were good.
0: And we've made this observation before that John Carpenter, along with a lot of his contemporaries, people like Joe Dante,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, people like... Uh, oh, who else? Um, Stuart Gordon. Stuart Gordon was another yeah. one. Uh, uh, Toby Hooper. These are people who made a lot of really notable... Uh, Genre films In like the 1970s And 1980s Who just couldn't Survive into the 90s Yeah Something shifted In the 90s Uh, Mm. They were so Movies got bigger And movies got smaller
1: It's not quite as big A (laughs) schism Excuse me A schism as there is now but that schism was starting.
0: Well, also, I think just their operational ethos didn't fit anymore. Uh, these were people who were very interesting, interested in uh, deconstructing, hating or satirizing the status quo. Yeah, you, they're all these. Uh, you, know, you look at Joe Dante. His films are very playful, but they're also like a little bit subversive. They feel mm. a little bit naughty. <laughs> Uh, John Carpenter's films are are very bleak at their core, mm-hmm. uh, Toby, but accessible. For the uh, most part, Toby Hooper was just out of his mind. If you look at some of his more personal projects, they make no sense.
1: And even some of his uh, more uh, Toby Hooper's The Mangler is one of the most incomprehensible mainstream films you've ever seen. <laughs> it's so fucking. Bad. But that's
0: the reason I like it, but uh, I, can't, I, I, will I cannot nev- go
1: with you on this. Journey. I will
0: never ever call it a good film, but I do like it. Okay. Uh, And I I think, yeah, something shifted in the 1990s. Wes Craven was able to roll with it. In Mm -hmm. fact, when he made Scream, he kind of defined a lot of the 90s in a way. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, simultaneously commenting on the recent history of horror as well. So Uh, he was able to situate himself as the old guard who was also making room for the new.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I think John Carpenter was just another one of these people whose sensibilities didn't fit with this gigantic sea change that happened in the 1990s when everything became... not cynical, but a little bit more self-aware. Yeah. And uh, I think In the Mouth of Madness definitely fits into that mold. And uh, Wes Craven even made a film that was very similar the year before called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah. Where he did the same sort of thing with the Freddy Krueger myth. He's kind of deconstructing it a little bit, but I think, uh, yeah, they just sort of aged out this generation of filmmakers in the eyes of the public. I think they didn't start making bad films, and in fact, I would argue that a lot of the films in in John Carpenter's career are better than they got credit for from this era. Mm. Uh, Which leads us to The War, I believe.
1: Um, Uh, Well, there were a couple episodes of Masters of Horror in the middle, mm. Uh, real, real fast. He did one uh, called Cigarette Burns about uh, finding a movie that was so... Mm. uh, impure that it caused madness and sanity and the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's pretty good. Yeah. He also did a movie called pro life, which is set entirely at an abortion clinic, which does not work.
0: No, it's really, it's really, quite really bad, actually. it's it really be, blatant. It might, and it might never, be the worst thing he's done. It's really blatant.
1: And even if, even if the script wasn't really blunt and in your face, mm-hmm. um, it just doesn't come together. Like it feels no. like cheap and slapdash it feels like he just really threw that one mm. into
0: a blender and hoped it would turn out. Okay. Yeah. And it just doesn't fit. I, but his I, last, I do like yeah. cigarette burns though. Cause it, it does feel yeah. a lot like a, a follow up to in the mouth of madness. Yeah. In a lot of ways. It definitely have a piece, mm. but yeah, his
1: last feature film came out in 2010 and I think it's really underrated. It's called the ward. It stars Amber no, Heard. Not, not just
0: underrated. It's under Nobody saw this. Uh, oh film. yeah.
1: Barely came out. I think it only made a few thousand dollars in theaters. Mm. Um, but yeah, it stars Amber Heard. Uh, As a young woman who has amnesia and finds herself in a mental health and in a mental institution, I think the 60s. Yeah, I, think I think it's so. in the past I Yeah I'm trying to remember When exactly it is um, And it's just her And a bunch of other women With serious uh, mental health mm. issues And uh, she begins to suspect That the ward that she is in Is haunted mm. And that the supernatural force Is killing off the yeah. other denizens Yeah it takes place in 66 um,
0: Mamie Gummer is in it She's really uh, good in
1: That was the first time I noticed her as an actor She really, she really sticks out Jared Harris I think plays The doctor
0: is Jared Harris So you know good. something's fishy Something
1: fish is going on <laughs> um, Here's what I'll say About the ward uh the ward is the only movie John Carpenter did with a predominantly female cast. And, and a female lead at that. And, I th- yeah, I think it's the only time he we met... Well, I didn't see some of his C- TV Kim movies. Kim
0: maybe, maybe. Kim Cattrallian. Well,
1: th- and there, and didn't he make a TV movie called Someone's Watching Me? Didn't that uh, have a female lead? Oh, well, and yeah. also Halloween, Laurie Strode. Oh, right. Well, yeah. So, yeah, but it's, it's uncommon, and this mm. was a mostly female cast, and he's really, really good with the actors. Everyone gets their moment. That part's great. It's got a great sense of atmosphere, mm. and there's some very energetic, scary sequences. Yeah. problem is the script's a little formulaic. You probably guess where it's going to go from pretty early on, and it relies too much on what it thinks will surprise you, but was actually mm-hmm. rather predictable. Well, but if I, you can uh, get past that, it's a very well-crafted scary story.
0: You know, it came out in 2010. Uh, John Carpenter's style had, was completely forgotten. We had got, just essentially suffered through this gigantic wave of... Like film after film of uh, J horror, J horror remakes. That is uh, horror movies from Japan of a a very particular type, a lot of haunting movies, and all the torture movies that were coming out during the the George W. Bush administration. And I I felt like when I watched The Ward in twenty ten, or I think I didn't see it until twenty eleven it was so refreshing to see that craft back again. Mm. It, that John Carpenter, even though... It's kind was, of meat
1: and potatoes. Yeah, it's like yeah. he just
0: knows where to put the fucking camera. <laughs> I know. It's like ever, everything was getting so digital and slip shot and everything was really sort of shaky. Like The the actual like framing of a shot wasn't really a thing anymore because yeah. cameras were so lightweight and it's still not. Yeah. A lot of shots aren't framed in any kind of important way because you don't have to lock anything down. You
1: really start... It's one of the reasons why I think yeah. A24 horror movies really blow people's minds is mm. because they are movies in which framing fucking matters. Yeah, like they're actually like shooting shots. Treated like films, you know. (laughs) Um, They really really stick out.
0: uh, I remember uh, encountering that as well when I saw Jurassic Park, when they re-released it in 3D. They retrofitted it, and I didn't care if it was in 3d i just wanted to see yeah how, how does this look now it had been a while since i'd seen it it looks fucking and great it looks great it's kind of amazing how few edits there are mm-hmm. how clear the photography it's very is controlled if yeah it feels almost calm and slow moving compared to a lot of these just hyperactive uh, yeah. action movies of today so yeah watching the war did highlight how film how much filmmaking had changed so rapidly yeah and how john carpenter is still doing his old craft he's still making it well it yeah. just doesn't fit with what's popular now.
1: Yeah, and uh, that was the last feature mm. that he made. He's done a few things here and there. He's mm. mostly
0: focused on his music. Uh, a lot of his movies were being remade at that time. Oh, uh, yeah. And, uh, so Halloween was remade. Assault from Precinct 13 was remade. The, the thing Assault was from remade. Precinct
1: 13's remake is pretty good, actually. It's okay. It's pretty good. Um, it's worth a rental. It's not bad. Okay. Um, Rob so Zombie's Halloween
0: is a very controversial film. I actually mm. like Halloween 2 better. Um, um, the other uh, remake of Halloween is superior to rob zombies but i feel about the newest halloween it's not really a remake the new one it's a reboot it's a it's the. it's it's technically it's halloween 2
1: yeah it's it's what it's what Mm. people have playfully started calling a requel oh god (laughs) where you're going back but you're only remaking the sequels (laughs) the original still stands
0: i love love what they said on red letter media technically it's halloween 2 not to be confused with halloween 2 or halloween 2 yeah oh God. It's such a mess. It's getting confusing. Uh, I agree. Yeah, but David Gordon Green's Halloween, uh, it's it's like a a really good cover of a song, but they didn't change the instrumentation. Look, let's be
1: fair. It's at Sto- least still the a second or good, third best song, Halloween
0: movie. Sure. Can we agree the, on that? I'll, well, I mean, the sequels all suck. so <laughs> they all suck. Halloween H two O is pretty good. Halloween Four is fine. 4, 4, ha- Four is okay. Seven is pretty good. The
1: others uh, mostly suck. I grant uh, you that. Eight, eight is
0: quite bad. Um, eight is terrible.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, Two, people give it a pass. I'm not a fan. Three is kooky and weird and totally its own thing, mm. and it's a little overrated now, but it's fun. fun. Yeah,
0: five's pretty yeah. terrible. Four, uh, four is
1: just a rock solid meat and potatoes yeah. slasher sequel. If it was the only Halloween sequel, I think we'd all be very happy with it. Five is dumb, mm. six is dumber. This Uh, is very dumb uh, Seven is Frankly rock solid And frankly hits Almost all the same beats As David Gordon Green's film Hmm. Um, I think uh, Jamie Lee Curtis Gets a fantastic performance In both Hmm. And that's really The saving grace Of both films
0: Two different versions Of the same character That's the saving grace Of both films I Um, think the kills are scarier In the newer Halloween David Gordon Green one I didn't see the remake Of The Fog Remember that was also remade I did not either Um, I'm trying to think of I guess guess that's it All all in terms of remakes But um John Carpenter <clears throat> stopped giving shits at some point. Yeah. Uh, he just didn't really care. And he, he's even said in interviews, like people saying, what, what do you think about the, all these remakes? They're kind of violating your vision or they're changing what you're saying or they're inserting themselves in your classic. And he says, I love it when they remake my movies because I hold up my hands and a check floats into it <laughs> and I've done no work. <laughs> It's like, great, he's, he's made the movie and he gets paid he's, a second he, time.
1: I, I feel like John Carpenter, more than almost any other filmmaker, is mm. very happy to be retired. Yeah,
0: like... He's, he's, he's fine, he's, he's playing set. video games what, what, what and listening about, to music. Playing video games, playing with my guitar, smoking weed, that's yeah. all I really wanted. That's all he cares about. Like, yeah. And he's fine, he's had such a legacy. Mm. I'm not going to begrudge he, he him a damn thing. He does not need to work, he's fine. If, and
1: honestly, it's not even one of those things where it's like, oh, it's such a shame that their last movie was bad. The Ward is fine.
0: The Word, the is, word fine, is, a, is a
1: good movie. It's not what, one of
0: his best, but it it's definitely
1: like upper yeah. half. Like, it wasn't a good. hit,
0: but he didn't have a hit since, what, 1988 or something? Jesus, yeah.
1: I don't even know. I'm trying to think of Memoirs of an Invisible Man made money. He never really had giant hits mm, they all became after, I think, gay. Christine. I think Christine did really, really well. Okay, um, But yeah, he was never like this, except for Halloween, which of course made his big name. It wasn't like this huge hit machine. There's a reason why he never became the new Spielberg, mm. because he's not as accessible as Spielberg... But I think everyone who has any affinity for pulp storytelling, I think, has an affinity for John Carpenter's work. Mm. Again, he's a very natural storyteller. He doesn't get in your face with it, mm. but there's rarely ever anything wrong with it. Yeah, um, He's inventive. A lot of his screenplays are very clever at uh, repurposing pre-existing genres or coming up with new spins on old ideas. Um, his movies often tried to push the envelope in terms of what was acceptable in visual effects, what was possible in terms of uh, music and characterization. His movies, yeah, you're right. They're, they're nihilistic and subversive. and But they're nihilistic and subversive for the most part without being in your face about it. Which is one of the reasons why I think a lot of people think that like, oh, you know, subtext in horror movies needs mm-hmm. to be subtle and accidental. I'm like... Uh, no, John or- Carpenter knows that's in there He's just not focusing on it too hard mm. Most of the time Except in something like They Live Where he's very in your fucking face <laughs> um, He's one of my favorite filmmakers no, I would seriously yeah, sure. say like, he's, he's directed like eight of my favorite movies <laughs> like, like Dark Star, Assault mm. on Precinct 13 Halloween The Thing, mm. Escape from New York Christine, They mm. Live, Prince of Darkness That's eight Mm. oh and, the, and uh, In the Mouth of Madness like nine yeah, of my favorite yeah. movies so those are all end up in my top 100 movies of all time probably mm,
0: I, I love Halloween I love 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 Escape from New York I've, I've said before that In the Mouth of Madness kind of blew my mind in just the right way at just the right age so yeah. it kind of got me into movies in this weird sort of way uh, I Even his bad movies, like Village of the Damned, Mm -hmm. still have that weird hook to it. Yeah, they're not awful. They they, just don't really work. Like, overall, they don't really work. And you walk away thinking, oh, that was a dumb idea. But while you're in there, Mm -hmm. while you're in the theater watching these things, his craft still has that uncanny quality of drawing you in. Mm -hmm. So at the end of uh, Village of the Damned, when you're thinking of a brick wall and there's a big explosion, I was still like, Yeah! The Village of the Damned. It's like this, this <laughs> crappy movie I didn't care about, but that moment still got me. So yeah. uh, I, I feel like there aren't too many filmmakers like that, that don't have filmmakers who have a signature, don't have a signature style, yeah. but still manage to just be great. Yeah. It's, they're, the,
1: they're the filmmakers who make it look easy.
0: Yeah. Because they're not mm. calling
1: attention to how hard it mm. is. Um, and uh, that's one of the reasons why John Carpenter is great. He feels like mm. the working class yeah, director, yeah. The, the, the director who made movies for people who didn't need a lot of razzle dazzle, who didn't need uh, uh, even necessarily a lot of like really deep drama, although sometimes it's in there. Hmm. He's there for people who just want a really good, scary sci-fi action yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. And he will deliver and he delivered almost every single time. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he's one of my favorite filmmakers, one of Whitney's favorite filmmakers, has been a real pleasure Uh, we weren't supposed to, like, review all of his movies, but when we're giving a primer, we just feel like we need to give an overview when
0: we, when Of his get, entire work when we get on a tear, we get on a tear uh, We're yeah. sorry
1: <laughs> But, um, we love his work, we just wanted to give people something to think about for all of his movies and contextualize them with his mm-hmm. other work And, um, um, anyway, we hope that if you uh, enjoy the works of John Carpenter. This has been a fun trip down memory lane. If this is uh, relatively new to you, the work of John Carpenter, uh, there's a lot of films to check out and we hope we've guided you to uh, the ones <laughs> maybe you should start with. But uh, they're pretty much all recommended, even the ones I don't like. Um, so uh, that is your critically acclaimed. I want to thank, uh, once again, Richard Francois for uh, his contributions and for his really wonderful suggestion. Uh, this is one of the suggestions where Whitney and I was just like, oh, we can't wait to do this. <laughs>
0: oh, we, we, can, we can do this today.
1: Yeah, we can do this at any time. We love this. <laughs> this is our wheelhouse. <laughs> so uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for contributing. If you're listening, it means you're a contributor. Um, and um, we're deeply grateful to every single one of you. We mm. hope you are having uh, uh, a safe sane wonderful time wherever you are uh, And don't forget to leave a comment send us a letter if you want to talk about this letters of critically acclaimed.net at critic acclaim I'm at William Bibiani he's at Whitney Seibold um, and uh, we'd love to hear from you so uh, thanks this has been your critically acclaimed <laughs>